Okay, I'm gonna turn my video off because that's gonna take some bandwidth. Uh, I don't think we can spare that. Making phone calls in and out of Iran right now is difficult. Yes, I'm talking. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. This is a young man we'll call Amin, and he asked us not to use his real name because speaking to foreign journalists could get him arrested. Oop. Can you hear me? We just lost him. Amin lives in Tehran, and getting in touch with him has been so hard because the authorities there have made it nearly impossible to make or receive mobile phone calls between the hours of 4 p.m. and 1 a.m. That's prime time for demonstrations. Women, life, freedom. That's what they're saying. But that's a chant authorities in Iran are trying to silence. After the first maybe two days of protests, they tightened their grip over the internet. Almost everyone learned how to use VPNs and proxies and stuff like that to kind of circle the censorship. Right now, even my grandmother, who's 78, even my grandmother asks us to set up VPNs for her and she learns how to use them. That's why Iranian authorities have started targeting these virtual private networks with a kind of network packet filter. It has slowed mobile communications to a crawl. And since most Iranians connect to the internet through their cell phones, it's requiring the person on the street to be really creative. Hey, I'm back. I'm kind of surprised how long the connection lasted. The regime's goal is twofold, to make it harder for protesters to organize and to prevent the outside world from seeing what is unfolding in Iran. And that hasn't worked quite as well as authorities would like. In fact, there's already an iconic image that captures the hijab protests of 2022. It's a simple one. A stylishly dressed woman is standing on the hood of a car in the middle of a traffic jam. Her hijab is draped on the end of a stick. Amen saw it happen. I was maybe five meters away from her when she did that. There were cars, cars were honking. And then one of them was willing to let a protester go on top of the car. So she went on top. Everyone seemed to instinctively turn in her direction. And then she lit her scarf. So, so people were cheering and chanting. So there was this feeling of achievement, like we are finally free, we are doing this, and nobody has stopped us yet. Even talking about it right now, I have goosebumps. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, as the largest demonstrations in more than a decade continue to rage across Iran, authorities in Tehran are trying to rein in protesters by throttling the internet and switching off mobile phone connections. But it isn't working as well as they had hoped. Men and women continue to take to the streets. They're building bonfires of hijabs, and the movement is cutting across gender, class, and generation. It's not a revolution yet, but it might very well be on the path towards it. Stay with us. 
If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. The morality police in Iran are charged with enforcing laws of modesty. According to the letter of the law, women are required to cover their hair and hide the curves of their bodies. The Sharia tells women that they should cover all their skin, not not just skin, all their body, other than their hands, their feet, and their face. That's Amin again. And he says that it might surprise people to know that right after the 1979 Islamic Revolution, the hijab wasn't mandatory. It happened sometime after that. Yesterday's demonstration was the nearest thing to an anti-Khomeini rally yet. The imposition of Islamic law here has started with an order to women to cover their heads in government offices. By 1981, a law required women to wear the hijab. And it was about more than just enforcing a dress code. It was about control. If you don't wear a hijab, you could lose your job. You could be denied an education or refuse service in a shop. And women responded with a protest that literally seized the millimeter. Their scarves kept moving back on their heads until the hijab began to feel almost as much like a fashion statement as a religious requirement. Then, just this past July, the new Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, declared that women needed not only to cover their hair, but now were required to cover their necks and shoulders as well. The government cracked down on what it called the improper hijab. And that put a young woman from Kurdistan in the crosshairs. She was arrested by the morality police in Tehran earlier this month. They said she wasn't wearing the mandatory hijab or headscarf properly. 22-year-old Masa Amini had come to Tehran with her family just for a visit. She and her brother had decided to take the subway, and as they emerged from the station, a series of unexpected events began to unfold. It started with me hearing that a woman, uh, who now we know was Masa Amini, uh, was arrested by Marlty police, and a few hours later, she was rushed into ER. And obviously, we all thought the same thing, that they've probably done something bad to her. A short time later, a photo of Masa appeared on Instagram. She was lying in a hospital bed with tubes in her nose and her mouth, and there was blood coming out of her ears. The picture went viral. I myself felt my blood boiling inside my veins. It was hatred and anger and all that at the same time. The government officially announced Masa's death the next day, and the authorities released a video suggesting that Masa didn't die at the hands of police at all. 
They said she died of a heart attack in the hospital. But their video, it wasn't very convincing. It just showed a woman in a headscarf collapsing against a chair. And then paramedics, just seconds later, as if on cue, rush in. And, and you know, the video is not, it, it's from afar. And it's, it's not high resolution, so it's not even obvious that's her. Almost none of the people I know puts any weight on that video. Every woman who had been harassed or hassled by the morality police, every woman who knew someone who had been, had had enough. And the day after that, well, we were all waiting for a big protest. Like, I remember talking to my friends that this is the moment. If something huge is not going to happen now, when it's going to happen? And then it did happen. And authorities responded with beatings and gunfire. This video was posted on Twitter by 1500 Tasvir, an anti-government monitoring group. It shows a handful of young men demonstrating on the streets of Sakes, which is in Kurdistan province in Iran. Security forces dressed like stormtroopers roll up on motorcycles and then just open fire. Amnesty International released what it said was a leaked document from the general headquarters of Iran's armed forces. It was dated September 21st. It was an order for security forces to severely confront the protesters. And videos coming out of Iran suggest that's exactly what's happening. Like this one the Washington Post found and posted. It was taken in Sakez, where there have been a lot of protests. It shows a frantic group carrying a young man into a medical facility. He's covered in blood, and a woman in a hijab cries out when she sees him. According to Amnesty International, police have killed dozens in the protests so far. When we come back, a primer on safe demonstrating. Iran style. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Disrupting the internet during times of unrest is standard operating procedure in Iran, and they're getting better at it. During these latest demonstrations, they've actually targeted disruptions. After protesters began to gather around the hospital where Masa Amini died, their cell phone connections dropped out. It wasn't a coincidence. Masa Almarndani is a senior researcher at a human rights organization called Article 19. And she says when the U.S. reimposed sanctions against Iran during the Trump administration, Iranian authorities used it as an excuse to create a homegrown network, a network they could control. I've spoken to countless technologists inside Iran not being able to access things like Google Cloud Computing and having to turn to um, to companies providing those services inside Iran. Um, and this really helped and strengthened um, Iran's efforts to nationalize the internet 
Instead of Google Cloud, Iranians have something called the National Information Network, and it has what amounts to an internet off switch. Iranian authorities have the ability to cut off user access to the global internet and provide them just with domestic networks. So they can control what the Iranian people can see. When shutdowns occur, the you know, national internet infrastructure can stay up um, and working, especially during protests. What that means is it's much easier now for authorities to block messaging platforms like WhatsApp and Instagram. Even the messaging functions in games have been reined in. So the Biden administration weighed in last month. The U.S. Treasury Department, which enforces the sanctions, announced that it would allow U.S. tech companies to provide hardware, software, cloud services, and other technology to the Iranian people. The idea is to help them find ways around the Internet blockade. So this was a long time coming. Masa said it's a half measure. It definitely came too late, but obviously better late than never. So it was welcome. It will have some positive impact, obviously. But I can't deny that the harm has been done. As the demonstrations in Iran enter their fourth week, there are some signs that Iran's Gen Z aren't alone. They're being supported by previous generations of men and women, people who have demonstrated in the past, and, and help is coming from some other surprising quarters. Consider something we heard from another Tehran resident named Hossein. He lives in a military neighborhood in Tehran that is notoriously conservative. Protests don't happen there. But tonight, actually, I... When I was warming up my glass of milk, I heard some voices or people shouting death uh, to dictator, death to dictator from the windows, from the roofs. It was so out of character for this neighborhood. They opened the window just as an observer to see what's going on. He could hear people shouting. I didn't see who exactly is shouting, but someone shouting, for example, down with dictator or death the dictator. And then it went quiet again, and he thought he might have imagined it all. So, being a bit of a science buff, he decided to try an experiment. I wanted to uh, see if it is repeatable or not as a uh, scientific method. And just as a test, I shouted something like them. And a group of people repeated the same thing that I shouted. And yes, I was like, it might be true. But so it needs more uh, experiments to be a thesis. <laughs> and there have been some other things that have made him think that this time might be different. Like what he saw in the northern part of the city. Uh, where uh, has been always calm and relaxed and silent um, or uh, teenagers, young people, uh, even religious people. So they are protesting as well. And they have a unique way, he said, of fighting back against the security forces. Nakedness. Hussein said this older woman threatened to strip off her clothes if the police didn't let a young protester go. Fully religious a uh, woman. It was an older woman wearing a hijab. Fully naked in the middle of the street, in the middle of the square. And the woman said, my naked body will be all over social media and you'll be responsible. Like, so you are uh, now fighting for like a piece of hair, but uh, what you should fight for in the future 
would be a, a fully naked woman in the middle of the street. And yeah. And did it work? Yeah, it worked. He said the guard let the protester go. In fact, he said that his friends who are in the security forces say they are finding ways to let protesters escape before they take them to the station. And then there's this other thing about the guards themselves. The guards avoid eye-to-eye connection with people. They're avoiding eye contact. Exactly. I tested it. Like they're embarrassed. Yeah, and it was true. Amen, the Tehran resident we met at the beginning of the episode, he said even if some police are uncomfortable with the crackdown, a lot of people are still being arrested. Many of my friends have been questioned. Many of the people I know are right now imprisoned and you know, probably getting interrogated. Like, one of the people I know was arrested and they told her family, we're going to give you back his corpse. And people like Amen are getting some global reinforcements. The hacktivist collective Anonymous says it has launched attacks on government websites and has been trying to help Iranian citizens find new ways around government censors. Among other things, they have a primer on how to stay safe while protesting in the digital age. Never show your face. For, for example, use a shirt as a face mask. You know, cover your face so that people can't identify you. Uh, it's very important during protests because uh, they can find anyone through databases, just through street cameras. So that, that one is very important. That's a spokesperson for the group. He goes by the name Discordian. I would shut your phone off when you're at protests because they use stingrays to identify you. These are devices that block uh, signals, but also gather identifiable information from devices. A stingray is probably what the authorities used to drop the mobile signal around the hospital where Masa was taken before she died. And Discordian says Iranian officials are also trying to identify protesters from videos and photographs posted on social media. That may be why so many of the demonstrations now are filmed from behind. Amin, the guy we met earlier, says he's been following these rules. And he says his friends even have a few more. Almost everyone I know leaves all their passwords for social media, email, everything, with their family. And in case they're not back by the time they've told their family they're going to be back, the family is up to destroy everything. Lest that's going to be used against their loved one. His family hasn't had to do anything like that yet. I've been lucky, but, you know, I've taken all the careful steps. Like, all my social media accounts don't have a face picture of me. They don't have my name. I try not to share any, inform any personal information about myself, just so that I can keep my identity safe and, you know, survive. Deniability. Yeah. Does this feel different? Yeah, it definitely feels different. Revolutions never arrive when we expect them to. Amin is aware of that. So he's holding his expectations in check. That said, he does say that the so-called improper hijab regulations are unlikely to survive all this. Hijab is not going to be the same. This is Click Here.
We wanted to revisit another kind of cyber attack that's put Iran front and center recently. Back in July, hackers linked to Iran took aim at Albania. They attacked the government's websites and took them down for hours. What made it unusual was the way Albania responded. It severed diplomatic ties with Iran. So we thought we'd unpack what happened. Our own Sean Powers reports. When Mentor Becha tried back in mid-July to log on to this government website called eAlbania, it was an exercise in frustration. Name, password, rats, no luck. I uh, direct an NGO, so I was trying to access uh, my account of NGO in eAlbania, so it was, uh, it was not possible. Well, it turns out he wasn't alone. You see, Mentor happened to log on just as a group calling itself Homeland Justice had started this massive cyber attack against Albania's government websites. The government was hit by a massive cyber attack. That now, shut down the country's official websites, like the prime minister's office, the country's parliament. And the entire government digital infrastructure was under sustained and coordinated assault with a clear It probably isn't a coincidence that the first wave of digital attacks targeting Albania happened on July 17th, just days before the start of the World Summit of Free Iran. It was organized by an Iranian dissident group known as MEK. That stands for Mujahideen al-Kolk. Now, when Samin Kargar read about the hack... The first thing that came to my mind was the MEK. Samin is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. The Islamic Republic uh, sees the MEK as one of their arch enemies. Samin tracks around in cyberspace, and she says when Albania gave refuge to some 3,000 MEK members years ago, it didn't see reprisals coming. Especially not in this form or scale. Uh, at best, they might have thought that they would be facing security threats toward the MEK, but this sort of targeting the government directly was probably not something um, they were anticipating. Iran used to attack embassies to show its displeasure. Now, she says, the country goes after government websites. Sometimes finding out who is behind a cyber attack as it unfolds is like a whodunit. So when we do attribution, the first thing we do is you sort of have one incident and then then you try to link together multiple incidents that you think the same actors are behind. That's Ben Reed from Mandiant, and he helped lead a team that attributed the attack against Albania to Iran. So in this case, we found somebody used this software and then sort of pivoting off that, we found the code overlaps to us indicated that a single entity likely had links to all of these operations going back to 2012. And that's where we were able to take the totality of these operations we had clustered together and say Iran was likely responsible. Nation state hackers, like those in Iran, are known as advanced persistent threats, or APTs. But Ben says Iran is more persistent than advanced. They don't use a lot of zero days. They're not using kind of the most recent, most advanced malware, but they have sort of have shown a willing to be disruptive. 
Iran denies it had anything to do with the hack. But when Albania cut off diplomatic ties, another wave of cyber attacks soon followed. And no one thinks that was a coincidence. I'm Sean Powers, and this is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence headlines from the past week. Last week's conviction of Uber's former information security officer, Joe Sullivan, may have sent a shot across the bow for the country's chief information security officers. He was found guilty on charges related to a cover-up of a 2016 security incident at the ride-sharing company. The record spoke to more than a dozen security executives about the case, and they're split on whether the conviction will have ripple effects in the industry. Some, like Digital Shadows CISO Rick Holland, said the case will encourage more CISOs to become whistleblowers. Others said security chiefs should be prepared to be held responsible for incidents that occur on their watch. Prosecutors said Joe Sullivan deliberately tried to conceal information and mislead the FTC about a breach in which hackers stole the personal data details of some 57 million customers and the personal information of more than half a million of the company's drivers. And finally, have your IKEA smart lights been driving you crazy? Researchers discovered two vulnerabilities in the company's smart lights that would allow an attacker to take control of the system and make the bulbs rapidly blink on and off. Researchers at Synopsys Cybersecurity Research Center discovered the bug and approached IKEA about it this summer. A company spokesman told The Record that the company has worked with Synopsys since the disclosure to improve the safety and functionality of their smart devices. The company made clear that the hackers could only irritatingly flash the lights and that it is impossible to access sensitive information from their gateway or smart devices. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors, Dan Ancrum is our fact-checker, and Ben Levingston composed our theme. Kendra Hanna is our intern. A special thanks to our guests in Iran, who have a lot of advice about my connection issues. So, you know, if your internet connection is bad, so I suggest that uh, change your uh, provider to Verizon, maybe. It could be better. <laughs> <laughs> I am Verizon, as a matter of fact. Oh, so uh, turn to AT&T, <laughs> so it will give you a better, uh, uh, like, service. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And connect with us by email at click here at recordedfuture.com or on our website at clickhereshow.com. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.